City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer working in the theater seminars, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Now, in the 31st year, these seminars give you the opportunity to learn from the professionals as they share their experiences in working in the theater. Today's seminar is with a panel of playwrights, directors, and choreographers. These are the artists who provide the creative part of the theater, and it's their work that we will learn about while we discover how the magic of theater is created. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. I would now like to introduce our moderator for the seminar, Lloyd Richards, renowned director, Tony Award winner, and distinguished member of our Board of Directors. Roy, would you please start your part of the show? Lloyd Richards. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here <coughs> with you and with all of you to talk about the thing that I guess is closest to certainly the people who sit on this panel and probably in some way or other to you, or hopefully will be. Now what do these people who are up here do and how did they get here? So I'm going to let you find out from their mouths, just who they are, and what they expect of themselves, and what they're looking at one another kind of cautiously for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't we start out with David Petrarca. David? Hi. What can I tell you? Well, who are you, Dave? <laughs> who am I? I'm David Petrarca. I'm director. Um, uh, I've been working at the Goodman Theatre as a resident director for the last 14 years, as well as a freelance director here in New York. Um, pretty much grew up in the not-for-profit theatre and have been uh, directing uh, recently A Year with Frog and Toad, which is on Broadway, a new musical, and uh, Kimberly Akimbo, uh, played by David Lindsay Abair, that was at Manhattan Theatre Club this year, among uh, many other projects. Thank you. I think we're all a bit more acquainted with a very <laughs> talented director in the theater. Uh, beside me is Richard Greenberg, looking very much as he looks. And he has an important job in the theater. What do you do, Richard? Well, <laughs> I'm a playwright. And oh. I've, I've, oh, yes. <laughs> and I've been a playwright more or less um, since I attended Yale Drama School during your regime, Lloyd. <laughs> uh, I, I, I use that in the nicest sense of the word. I mean, you ran the place after all. And, um, uh, and I've written a lot of plays over the past, I don't know how many years. And right now I've got one called uh, Take Me Out, which is, I think, why I'm here. And that's me. 
That's uh, that's uh, that's pretty good. That's good Thank enough. You. Thank you. <laughs> and you've come a ways since Yale. Since New Haven. <laughs> since I New hope Haven. so. Yes, it's been a long time. Yes, we've both come a ways since so. New Haven. On my left is uh, someone that uh, you may not have met, but you will today, and you will in the future. And when you hear the name, you will now have a face to associate with it. Uh, we have Suhir Hamad, who is with us, and she will tell us what uh, she does. I know what she does, but it's going <laughs> to be a surprise to most of you. <laughs> Suhir. I am a poet, and I love being a poet. I'm currently on Broadway, and Russell Simmons presents Deaf Poetry Jam. Uh, it's nine poets and a DJ, and uh, it's a... Uh, it's all poetry on Broadway, and for all of us, it's our first time on a Broadway stage, and it's been an amazing experience. After Broadway, I will continue to be a poet, but um, <laughs> this experience has been uh, magical for me. Thank you. And sitting on her left is uh, a person, I'm sure you've heard the name, and now I'm going to give you a, a face to go with it, uh, Bob Balaba. Oh. <laughs> who knows enough to bring his clack. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> knows that. Bob's we'll been around. After this. <laughs> uh, I, I do a number of different things. Uh, I'm an actor and a director and a producer occasionally, and I, it, I won't go on. That's a little, <laughs> I'm a little diverse, and I, I sort of refer to myself as it's the best thing you can have if you have ADD is about 20 different things you have to do every day because you can give the illusion of being organized and knowing what it, everything is and yet I'm just jumping about. Uh, why I suppose I'm especially glad to be here today is I have a play running in New York that's been on for about 10 months called The Exonerated, which are true stories in their own words of six men and women who were on death row who were innocent who were exonerated. Uh, it's just been a terrific experience and I'm I've directed in New York a couple of other times in the theater and some movies and some other things. Uh, but this, I'm a producer of this and I'm getting a really interesting insight into a lot of things about theater that as an actor I had no idea were going on and even as a director I wasn't exactly sure of. Uh, and it's, it's been interesting. We're about to go to London with the play and we have a national tour forming and this is something that was so tiny and such a labor of love we had no idea we would ever get going and it's going beautifully. Thank or you. Or well, at least. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, both of those. <laughs> well and beautifully. <coughs> Luis Perez, who needs no introduction <laughs> to his family. <laughs> to most of us, he does. If he were to stand up, you would know immediately what he does. He moves beautifully, mm -hmm. and he encourages others to do that also. And why and how, he might tell you. But uh, I want you to meet Luis Perez. Thank you. I'm Louis Perez, and uh, I'm a choreographer on Broadway. I'm also a fight director on Broadway, and I've done quite a bit of directing off-Broadway and other places. And I was a performer for 13 years. Uh, I've done 13 Broadway shows as a performer, and before that I was a principal with the Joffrey Ballet. So I don't have ADD, but I have kind of bounced around quite a bit within the uh, performing world. So 
I'm very, very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, that's it. That's the panel. And they want to share their experiences and the knowledge that they have acquired in that process of getting from wherever they were to this point on this stage at this time. And uh, we're going to try and get a little bit of that out of them. Yeah. But uh, why, don't we, why don't I start at the beginning with the word? How does the word begin? So I, Richard is uh, pulling away from me because he knows <laughs> I'm going to him next. Poet is on your left. Yeah. The poet <laughs> should start well, about the play. That's really the core of the word, isn't it? <laughs> is it? I don't know. I think so. Well, I'm going to be. I'm going to accept your suggestion because I know that behind it there is something else that's called terror. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm going to turn away from the poet and turn to Sahir. I ain't scared. Yeah, he's scared. <laughs> yeah, he's scared. Nothing. Mm -mm. Uh, so how does how do you start the word? What provokes the word? I think it lives inside of you until you write it down. I think our experience with the show has been that uh, all of these poems that we're performing came from personal experiences. There were reactions to the things that were going on around us. Um, often they were what was missing in what the world was telling us about ourselves. And as a poet, you carry this around with you until it, I guess, it, um, it comes out not fully formed, but it comes out in a shape that you can then edit and manipulate, either for the page or for the stage. But it's all personal experience that, um, if you do not say, will make you sick. <laughs> It'll mm -hmm. stay inside of you. Do you, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, I don't mind. If you do you do often, that. before this experience, had you often gotten up in front of people and read your poetry out loud? I had learned to. I had learned to. Because um, people all around the country had my books. And so when you go to sign books, they want you to read the poems. So I had to learn how to um, dramatize what I had mm. written solely for the page mm -hmm. in a way that the audience responded. And, they, and people who love your poetry or love your plays and essays, they want to hear your voice. There's something magical about the, the, per, the producer mm. um, and the voice that you bring to it and, the, and all of your family and your history and what you believe comes out of your mouth. And it, it means a lot to people to hear you say what you write. That's what I found. So I've, I learned to do it, but not, definitely not at the level that I do it every night, eight times a week. It's <laughs> 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 <is> real different. <laughs> so the word maker becomes the performer. Mm -hmm. Tries. Uh, uh, Attempts, yeah. Without acting lessons? No, know? we had an assistant director who worked with us. We have an amazing stage manager. We have an amazing director. So there was a lot of work. I think I, had a, I needed a lot of work. You needed a lot yeah. of work <laughs> to transform from the maker of the word to the sayer of mm -hmm. the word. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, when you hear your words uh, by spoken by other people, do that, does that often give you a, another insight into what you've said? <laughs> I love oh. it. You love it? Yeah, because then they claim it. They claim their own experience. I can write a poem and, and mean one thing to me. Yeah. And when someone claims it and performs it, I, I learn from the poem, and I become the student, and that's when that when it's well-crafted poem. And that's mm -hmm. what you try to do, is create poems that last after you. Okay. 
Richard. What do you think about that, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I love it. Um, sometimes <laughs> I don't, really. And I, I suppose, um, I suppose um, when you're writing, uh, you know, dialogue, when you're mm -hmm. writing things between people, there's, I have such a specific sense of how it goes, and it's, 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 it's procrastinating, it's wrong of me. And occasionally I can allow something that completely surprises me in. Um, actually, often I can do that. And, and that's probably finally more rewarding than when I hear just what I'd heard, mm. you know? Because I, it, you're right, you, you just want to see the experience extended beyond the page. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's quite wonderful when it's beautifully embodied. Now, in the play I have now, I have both the nicest and the most talented cast I've ever had. And so there's a sort of surprise and joy to it every night. There's also, um, for me, there's a kind of wonderful surrender since when I'm done writing. You know, I sit in rehearsal, and more and more as I go along, I pretend to take part in the process. Um, <laughs> because, because really, after so many years of rehearsing, um, I, uh, I I'm very interested in results, and results are a terrible thing to bring into a room. Mm. Or so I'm, I'm constantly suppressing my real reactions, which are, please get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know what it is, why don't you? Do you know what I mean? It seems, seems self-evident. So what's great is you realize it isn't self-evident. You realize you've written a, a, a supply of text that's open to various interpretations, and even more misinterpretations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, part of the deal with being a playwright is entering into that bargain and accommodating to it. And of course, it changes every night. I, I, I had had some weird, errant desire in youth to be a performer and then um, uh, realized, one of the things that I think clinched playwriting for me is I realized that when things are going badly, I can leave. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And I, I like that sort of freedom <laughs> and that separation. <laughs> that, no, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a nice feeling. You know, you're stuck on stage with an, an mm -hmm, uh, hostile crowd and you can't let go. And I remember actually having moments at the Yale Cabaret where I thought playwriting was the right choice for me <laughs> because I was on stage. And, um, <laughs> and um, you know, so I, it's a mixed bag. You know, you go back and then you start seeing, uh, you start seeing people loving stuff that you don't, you know, the great George's Kaufman line, we're going to come and take the improvements out. Right. Do you know, you see all the improvements and you see the embellishments right. and you just want simplicity. But, but it's basically an astonishing thing to give it over. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazingly gratifying thing when you see exactly what you'd had in mind but had been unable to express. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you can't express the physical. I mean, I can't. I have a very vague, a very abstract sense. It feels specific. But really, if I were to put it into words, what I'm seeing, it would be blue. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think it should be blue. And then, you know, when you have a director who's keyed in and designers who are keyed in, suddenly mm -hmm. you, see, you see what you meant by blue. But it's broken down into thousands of minor gestures. Mm -hmm. and, um, so yeah, it's a it's a it is a different thing, isn't it? When when someone else is doing your words mm -hmm. from what you're doing, you have complete control, but you don't have the gift of stepping back and being both the audience and the creator, mm -hmm. and that's a that can be a, a really glorious thing. Would you define for me the word as you used it, misinterpretation? Hmm. Um, mm, yeah. Well, you know there. There's what you, there's the rhythm you hear in your head. If, if you, I, I, um, I, I write from my own ear. I mean, I know exactly as I'm writing how it's meant to sound. One of the things I've noticed, often novelists don't do that. You can hear, do you know that even really good novelists sometimes write very, very bad dialogue? It's because they're not hearing it. And I had a novelist when I was a student telling me in surprise that you, you know, he read something of mine and said, I, I think you hear what you're writing when you have people speaking. And I, 
it occurred to me that he didn't. Mm -hmm. And that was startling. So I hear it, and I, I know how it goes. And there's that, that sense of, um, you know, the, the extra step that isn't there. Sometimes when you're hearing people who are off, off rhythm, off your rhythm. There are two kinds of things that happen, though. One is additive. One enlarges your own knowledge of what you said, your own knowledge of what you've written. Because if you're writing freely, you are writing in, in, in some sense subconsciously or from the mm -hmm. subconscious, so there's more to it than you've controlled. And if you've controlled everything, chances are it's dead. So there's the, there's a wonderful thing when they, they bring out what you didn't know is there. And then there's just the bad thing when they have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> you know, and that sometimes happens where they, where you just, uh, you know, and I also have this very kind of um, advocacy kind of year where I, I can sort of feel, uh, no, 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 the emphasis is supposed to be on that word, not on mm. that word. And it makes no sense, so why are you constantly, uh, you know, I'm churlish <laughs> that way. But sometimes there are just people, you know, you, you do and you realize there are some moments that, that, that um, either haven't been directed correctly or there's the kind of amazing thing that happens with miscasting, um, where people are playing roles to which they're um, uh, non-aligned or mm -hmm. opposite to, you know? There are people whose every impulse is against the grain of the role mm -hmm. he's playing and why you cast him. Is that a good thing? You know, in the rare instances when someone triumphs over it, it can be a fascinating thing. But it can be a really, really frustrating thing uh, otherwise. I mean, I think it's great because you do want, the, the whole idea is to play what's not you. But yeah. then there's being, you know. Now, does misinterpretation mm. mean interpretation not as I envisioned it or heard it or actually misinterpretation? I, I mean it as misinterpretation because I, I have been delighted by what I didn't know was there. I, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of wonderful thing, and it's, you, you have to give up your ego and your sense of um, authority, you know, your authorial feeling. When, yeah. you, when you realize that, oh, there, there's a world that I was not um, cognizant of in my writing, and, and it's, it's, it's thrilling. But, um, but there's just, there are people, do you know, hmm, I don't want to say, but... Do tell. There's well, bad, there is bad there's acting. Bad. There's bad acting. Yes. There is there bad is. acting. There's bad directing. There's, there is and there's bad playwriting. And there's <laughs> I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> most of us have experienced it. No, we're not mentioning any names, and I don't in any way feel implicated. No. But, um, yeah, there is. But there is bad acting. There's just, there are people who miss the point, and you start thinking, it's that amazing thing when you realize that people don't share a vocabulary because I think we go along in our lives and even if we think we're cosmopolites, we're really parochial. Do you know what I mean? And we somehow think, well, assume that people are thinking basically what we're thinking or mm -hmm. the people in our circle are. And then sometimes you get into a rehearsal process with something <coughs> you didn't know. And you realize the, the fundamental sentences you've learned are not the fundamental sentences this person has learned. And a, and a fundamental approach is, is different and, you, and you, didn't even, you weren't even aware that this way existed. It's sort of, let's ignore what anyone is saying. Let's not break the scenes down. Let's not, do you know? I, it's just, it's, it's startling. Does anyone, or does any of that at any point suggest the possibility of another play for you? Mm -hmm. From what you've heard, from what they've said? Oh, that's an interesting, that's a very good question. Why? Um, I, it hasn't so far. Real misinterpretation, I think, doesn't suggest anything except, you know, another career path. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 do you know, but, but a sort of angle, you know, the thi 
can be really fascinating, and and I think it. I don't know that I've had the experience where I've 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 you know the light bulb went off because it's some some radically um, divergent interpretation of of something I've written. I haven't had that yet, although it would be interesting to have it. Do you stand at the back of the theater, or do you sit in the theater when you are? <laughs> watching your play evolve uh, in, say, previews? I, I, as long as there's an audience, I'm never among them. You that terror that you spoke of so glibly, well, it actually does, um, oh, does I express itself. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, I, it, it expresses itself. You know, audiences are terrifying, really. Yes. Aggregates, you know, crowds are actually, until I discovered baseball, I never knew there was a good thing, uh, such a thing as a good crowd. <laughs> but um, audiences, I, I can't be among them, I d because I'll focus too much um, on them. And, you know, a response is only seems uniform sometimes, but really it's, mm -hmm. it's diverse. And I always find, also, you know, when you sit in the last row, it's a really bad thing to sit in the last row, because mm -hmm. you're sitting behind the person having the worst time because they have a bad seat. <laughs> so, it, so, so, so it always seems to be going badly. Because you're, you're with the people who are bored and checking their watches and sort of, you know, leaning into their boyfriends. And, and you just think, and so you always think you have a flaw. So I try to separate myself and just sort of see the play and then get a sense of what's communicating and what isn't. But no, I can't be in the midst. You never learn anything from an audience, from sitting in there amongst them? Ah. Uh, I can't remember the last time I did it, um, <laughs> so I, I guess I don't. I mean, I, I guess I don't. Well, it's a, it's a thing that I insist that? Yeah. that a playwright does at times mm -hmm. in the process. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about what do you think? About the uh, sitting yeah. in the audience? Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I, I actually think, uh, I mean, I think it, to a large extent it is the director's responsibility to some extent to be the liaison between the audience's experience and the play that Richard has written or anyone has written. I mean, I always find that that's part of my responsibility is to ex sit there and experience the horrendous scene that is not working and try to kind of dissect it and to remove myself from the terror, to breathe through that terror and kind of find a way to, another way of seeing it. Um, so the interaction and the reaction of the audience to the writing is extremely important to me. I mean, that is a, a very big part of what I do, is find a way to interpret it, not to be affected by it to the point that I'm operating and making choices <coughs> out of panic, mm -hmm. but to try to really hear it, to hear what is going on. Are they bored? Are they not understanding what's going on? Um, is it too slow? How do you get that feeling from it? How do you, how do you get that? Oh my that? God, I think the audience, for me, the audience tells you immediately. I mean, I just sense it. That's why I think it's the uh, most important place for a playwright to be. Yeah. Is right in the audience where you can sense from them what they're thinking. In the if audience, you, so that, you know, they're, you're really just responding to the four people around you. And you're making up very particular histories. You're just, I mean, when you're just a little bit behind them, I think when you're sort of standing and leaning over the rail, you get kind of the aggregate response, mm -hmm. which is much mm -hmm. more important than I think Terrible. the four people who you're feeling all sorts of paranoia about. <laughs> Do you well, know what I mean? And who are particular in having their individual response. There is something about an, aver an average of response. When you feel a general restlessness, chances are right. you're not getting your point across. Right. Do you know what I mean? And when you're Let's getting, you know. That's yeah. what, uh, any of those people, if you ask them at the end what was wrong with the play, they will tell you quite mm -hmm. specifically. 
and they will be wrong. They will be wrong in right. terms of their own response. Okay. And what you find when you sit yourself in the middle is you find the truth. You know, it's and interesting. You know, I always thought like with movies. Yes. You know, when you do movies, they force you to attend much of the time these horrible screenings <laughs> with experts who then. They have people watch the movie, and then afterwards they fill out cards, and then they select a focus group and, and say, what's wrong with the ending, and what should this character be doing? And then they completely change the movie based on what 10 people who are completely an anomaly, because they're willing to talk right away. That means they're different from the rest of the people who are watching it. You know? And I, I, I love the idea that you can feel things, but you mustn't ask them questions. No, it, it's, uh, then you make a movie maker out of them. And they're not movie makers, mm -hmm. and they are not uh, expert storytellers or playwrights. They are people responding to provocations from your play or your whatever. And that, that response, not as they articulate it, but as they have it, mm -hmm. is the most honest thing mm -hmm, that you can mm -hmm. get. So the audience is only one, one part of a broader collaboration. I mean, they, yes. you, you can't over give them too much importance as well either. I mean, I think between the designers, between the actors, between the writer, between the text, between the particular community that you're doing the play in, uh, all those things have an effect. I mean, theater is extremely local. No matter what anyone tells you, it is local. Where you do it is as important as what you're doing. And knowing who your community is. Um, I mean, I guess on Broadway it's a little different because you've got a vast audience that comes from all over the world to take part in the experience of sitting in the audience. But, you know, I do theater all over the country, and uh, I'm always very cognizant of the community that I'm doing that particular play in and how it will resonate or not resonate for that particular audience. So. I think it's what are the differences in the audiences across the country to Broadway? But it, it depends, I think, on um, what particular size theater you're in, uh, what the makeup of the community is that you're in. Um, you know, are you in a, uh, in a very uh, ethnically mixed neighborhood where the theater is? Are you in a predominantly white theater? I mean, these things are very important to choices that you make as an interpretive artist in a community. I mean, without the community, there's no active theater. So, is to me, Goodman, that's always is important. Is your Goodman audience more intellectual, do you think? I think we have a pretty diverse audience. We've, are, uh, you know, and again, the audience reflects the programming. Um, and over the years, our programming has tried to talk to many different audiences. So therefore, we kind of get a pretty good mix. So no, I wouldn't say that. I'd say it's the pretty, pretty broad base there. Uh, being a kind of flagship theater, it's got a broad base of an audience, so. In the many hats that you wear as a one-man person, how do you <laughs> feel about it? Um, which, which part is it? Well, I'm sorry, about, about right. different audiences? About the audience, and you as a one-man, you do mostly one-man things? Well, not, no, different things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the audience is... It's, it's silly to say it, but, you know, very important. Um, but as David says, you know, please let's be careful because, God forbid, you should give them what they think they want. You right. know? Um, I, I just think, I think that committee is a very, very dangerous thing in anything that's artistic, at least. You know, theater, movies, poetry, anything. 
Um, so it's a balance, I guess. It's wonderful to notice when people are bored. I mean, that's the simplest thing that, that you get from an audience. You make a movie and you actually have no idea how boring it's going to be because everybody who's sitting there thinks it's the best thing they ever saw. And then when you break it into the little pieces that you see every day at the end of the day, um, nobody ever left dailies and didn't think they were the best thing they ever saw. You know, yeah. Then you see it in front of an audience in its entirety and things that you were falling on the floor over crying you're sitting there just wishing you could die and disappear. <laughs> um, so to me, I mean, the audience is just a great barometer of what's flying and what isn't flying. And it's why we love theater, I, I think, because the audience and the play changes mm -hmm. every time you do the play, yeah, which nobody outside of theater ever really believes. And I'm in theater a fair amount as in different occupations and am constantly amazed. I mean... My wife will come to see something with, that I'm involved with and, you know, she'll say, oh, yeah, well, that works, that doesn't work, and this is like the bet. And I'll say, well, you didn't see it last night. Mm. Um, and, and, right. and I mm -hmm. do the same thing. I mean, I'll go to see something and, and I will not understand why the critics were raving about it, except if you had been there opening night at that one or three nights when something was happening. And then there are other plays that seem to transcend temporality somehow. I mean, I guess it's because, well, they don't really, but those actors in that play, they will experience themselves, as we know, as having terrible evenings, and yet, I mean, in the evening I'm involved with right now, in The Exonerated, we have ten people in the evening, three of whom are rotating stars of some kind. Um, so the, the evening changes every week or two drastically, and I find it very upsetting to see the play regularly because I have my favorite people and I only want to see them doing <laughs> it. Um, and well, yet, what about the play itself? Well, what it does it does what it have to say to you change that radically with who's saying it? In this case, it doesn't, actually. The emphases are different. Some people will find certain parts of the evening more moving than other parts. Well, our evening is a strange bird uh, in that it's, uh, it's people basically telling stories, and then there is some dramatic yeah. interaction amongst yeah. the characters, but it's kind of different. But because it's true, and because we announce at the beginning of the evening that every word that you'll hear in the evening was spoken by the person, you know, by the character who's, who's saying it, the audience adjusts in a very different way. Mm -hmm. um, and we try to be very, in, in the way that I directed it, that was always foremost in my thinking all the time, is what we're going to do even though you know we're actors up here, but I was always terribly concerned that what we were doing seemed real. Um, you know, that in, at no point would you, would, you st would you start thinking that we were actors up there. So that was very important. And yet it's very dramatic, and they're brilliant actors doing it who do an amazing, very, very theatrical job. But the sleight of hand was always to make you effortlessly slip into the minds of the people. I find in our evening that the stories are so compelling to people that evenings where I will go, oh my gosh, that person didn't reach that kind of dramatic m moment that the person last week did, I don't find that the audience tends to notice that because they're listening to the story that's being told. And if it's honest and if it's not, there's certain things that just doesn't want to be um, too decorated or, or different things. But I find that our evening holds together because the story is true and really complicated and interesting and People get involved with our stories, and they sometimes are more interested in what's happening on the left side of the stage than the right. But, but the evening is still there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's true of all plays. 
you know, I, I've seen things that flew one night and the next night they were boring or nobody laughed. And, and then if you're on, in, on Broadway in a great hodgepodge of people who've read good reviews, I was in a Neil Simon play. I, I was in uh, Plaza Suite when I was in college. Uh, this wonderful, y it would be demeaning it to call it a laugh machine, but it was a laugh machine. I mean, it had great characters, wonderful actors, George C. Scott and Maureen Stapleton. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to watch these people night after night. And even before the reviews came out, when they knew it was a Neil Simon play, they were so excited to be in the audience that the curtain comes up, I came out and said, everything all right, ma'am? And then everybody was laughing. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was so interesting. And uh, we've all been in plays that did smashingly well in previews, and they get disastrous reviews, and suddenly the things they were laughing at, they mm -hmm. walk in and they're like, you know, right. what is this horrible thing you're showing to us? It's, it's why we love what we do, because it's completely unpredictable. And, it c and, and every night you're there, sitting there, something is happening just for you, and you're, and you're influencing it dramatically. Do you find the same so thing happening in uh, uh, your poetry evenings? Yes, absolutely. It's true. And we tell people all the time, it's a different night every night. They, they find it really hard to believe, because it's the same poems in the same order. But it absolutely is different every night. You have an, a poem that it kind of introduces you to the audience. And depending on who the audience is and what kind of day they've had, they get it right away. And other times, they don't care. Mm -hmm. They just sit there. And then there's the climate of New York at any given time. Depending on where we are in the world on that day, the audience comes in for relief. They come in for escapism. They come in to blame. Um, and you, as a performer, deal with it. I think within our show, because we've written these poems, uh, it's hard not to take it personally. But y we've done it long enough now that at least I, I don't take it personally anymore. Plus, I go backstage to the stage manager calling the shots and say, did they hate me tonight? And she's <laughs> like, no, not really. And the next day, I'm like, they really hated me tonight. And she's like, they're tough. And that means they hated me. Um, <laughs> then you have to go back <laughs> and do, the, do another poem again with and that's why you have to let it go. You have to let it go before you go back on stage, because otherwise you'll be angry at the audience. Or you'll get too comfortable and say, oh, they loved me the first time. Then you come back out, you're doing a completely different poem, completely different intention with the poem. You can't re rely on whatever got you over the first time, is, is what I've learned. But yeah, I mean, New York City, I'm from New York, so the minute you, we step out on stage, I can read the audience. Like, I can tell where they're from, what they ate, where they're going after the show. <laughs> It's true. It's <laughs> so I bring my own assumptions, and you try to let <laughs> drop them. You try to drop them as much you know, as you can. It's just the night after something's gone spectacularly well mm -hmm. from the beginning, and then the next night, the show hasn't really changed that much, you can tell. But it's going spectacularly badly from the beginning. <laughs> and you want to just pull the audience, you want to say, what did you all do together before you came here? <laughs> because something has, it's odd, I don't understand why an aggregate has a personality. But somehow an audience <laughs> oh, takes on a personality. Because we're all sheep. It's really, I know, but how does it we start from read, the beginning? We don't think, what does it we don't yeah. I mean, people are afraid to like have their own opinion. I know, but why does it change so radically from one night to the next? There's also different, there's different energies on the stage as well. Well, there are, but I mean, there's, yeah. there's really different energies on yeah. the stage. And, and you're feeding the audience, and the audience is feeding you back. Yes, so some nights, God forbid that, you know, I mean, I'll be sitting out and watching La Mancha, and it's dead. <laughs> but 
there there are differences in a performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is such a thing as second night. I mean, yeah. I've been up there, I've done it, and you're up there, and you don't know what's going on, but you ain't there. Right. What do you think's missing on that second night? I don't night? know. I really don't know, but it, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that anyone who's ever gone through a brilliant first night can tell you about. That second night. I don't know if it's the focus. I don't know if it's just that little thing that clicks you over yeah. into a place where you're so open that you're really just giving out so that it can come back at you. Because mm -hmm. it is about putting the energy out to have it come back at you, especially in movement, I think. Well, of course, the first night when it went beautifully, you didn't know it was going You didn't know it, exactly. The second night you're expecting it, which is very hard to reproduce. Or you're letting something, you're letting <coughs> something down. You're, right. you're something within you, that was some furnace within you is kind of on a lower setting or something. Mm -hmm. Or you started to encode the expectation of the audience response into your performance. I, I Suddenly, and there's that, that kind maybe, of that strange, That may be you know. part of it. I mean, the expectation of something happening may be, may be a part of it. But that's, again, I mean, maybe in musicals it's different, but getting back to the original thing, I mean, an audience is indispensable in the musical oh, during oh, previews. Oh, I mean, sure. to help structure it, even. Mm -hmm. Because you yeah. can, maybe more with a musical than a straight play, feel where there's something that's starting to drop and you're letting that ball down. You're letting air mm -hmm. out of it. And you can do it through, we have a lot of more tools, I think, than possibly a straight play. You can change choreography, you can change tempos, you can change lighting, you can change mm -hmm. different things that will help buoy that up so that you get over that little section so that you can get into your next section. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a musical is structured very differently than a, than a play, but that's where we all feel or most of the people that I associate with feel that the audience is the final collaborator. Mm -hmm. yeah. You don't change it to their liking, but there's ways to manipulate it so that you can pass through a section if you're not going to mm -hmm. cut the section or rewrite the section, to pass through a section to make that section more interesting, to keep it forward moving so that you're plowing into the next. We, we had terror of an audience of, you know, 900 children at A Year with Frog and Toad. And you talk about an audience that keeps you honest. I mean... They're the best. I mean, uh, my 10-year-old will tell me exactly what plot points are missing. The first preview in Minneapolis was at the most hour. terrifying of my life, walking in and screaming audience. And I was like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? <laughs> I can't believe we're going to keep their attention for 90 minutes. And it was amazing to watch them, though. And that... That joy of watching an audience, mm -hmm. um, every night, uh, it's, it, after that first preview, there is no terror. I have utter joy sitting in that audience every night, yeah. watching children who've never seen a, a play, have never been exposed to theater in their life for the first time, to watch them have a reaction that is not edited, not cynical, completely honest, from whether they love it or they don't like that, they'll just tell you. And they speak up and they tell you. And there's moments in the show where Marklin Baker asks a question, and some nights the kids just answer him. <laughs> they just yeah. answer him. He's like, oh, my God. And, and to watch the actors do that. And then on other performances, like we have a Saturday night show, there aren't many kids there. It's mostly adults. So the actors are continually having to shift their performance, right. which is really wonderful for them. I mean, it keeps it very fresh. And it's really working without a net, which I think is everybody's goal to some extent in the theater, Absolutely. is to not have that safety net, to go out every night, mm. first night and the second night, and to recreate it in the moment right then and there. And I think that's part of what happens on the second night is mm. you're working without a net on, a, on an opening. The adrenaline is taking over. You're not thinking about it. You're in it. And then the second night, you're trying to recreate 
what you did the first night as opposed to remove that safety net and be in the moment again. So, As a playwright, how quickly can you recreate? You don't, you don't get an audience reaction until that first night. And whatever that reaction is, you've got to address it. Mm -hmm. How quickly mm -hmm. can you write to change it or not change it or... Well, you can do it pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but again, you know, um, I, I have thought, given the volatility of response, uh, the thing that I most want to know from an audience, I want to know what the reasonably intelligent people find confusing. Right. Do you know, that's what I, because, you know, that even, even if it's boring, maybe you've written an authentically boring play, <laughs> but at least it's your authentically boring play and you're right. not turning it into a machine to make people love you. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and since, do you know, you, you find out, I, with any luck, you're intelligent enough to have some idea of what doesn't work and where you've cheated and, and, and what you don't like yourself. And, and there are tragic portions that never get better. And, 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 and you know, it, finally, you just stop writing because the actors make you freeze a script. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever stopped writing before, you know, I don't know if I've frozen a script before Sunday when the, audience, uh, the critics are starting to come Tuesday. Yeah. I think that's when, and then the play is finished. The last play, you know, we, because it was this take me out as this baseball play, which, and here's another thing about an audience, it's a baseball play and we started in London. <laughs> so, I mean, there was a lot we couldn't really learn. <laughs> a lot of programs. There, there was a lot of, there, the dramaturgy went on for, it was like war and peace. <laughs> just trying to get people to sort of do what I just, I didn't know why we did it in London. I, I mean, I, it went, it went great, but I kept thinking that people were going to say, it was these, good planning. Well, it, it, if it works well, there, well, it's, it well, work fact, That's right, that's right. But there you had mm -hmm. to know that, um, there were passages where they were being very patient when clearly they didn't mm -hmm. know what was going on. <laughs> but their patience was telling because it meant that there was enough pulling them through that they didn't have to have some sort of, for them, arcane knowledge to get the play. So that, that was fine. But I wasn't going to rip this out since the play was chiefly intended for American audiences. Did but you find you wrote more, um, s more for the London audience and then removed it when you came here? Did you no, I wrote that they had more just because it was an earlier Right. And you always, I, any, any, you know, any play that's worth anything is worth cutting, right. I think, because the more you cut, the more you get to what's there, do you know, and all the stuff that, all those lovely phrases that mean nothing come out. But, but yeah, I mean, you can, you rewrite, you're rewriting pretty steadily. I was working with Joe Mantello, who's a really, really wonderful and kind of arduous director to work for because he never drops anything, even when he seems to. Even, <laughs> when you, even when you're revisiting a section time and time again, and you say, you know, the information is necessary, and it's, I think it's the best I can do. And I know it's not the high point, but every play has to have lulls. You, you know, you use all those <laughs> alibis. Um, and, and he says, and he'll just, and he'll say, oh, okay. And then a month later, he'll come back to it. And finally, it gets better. It gets better. But we ended up um, actually cutting after we opened at the public because we had so little development time on this sort of massive play that we were... That was actually fun. We were cutting through, um, through uh, the, the run, and then between the public and Broadway. Mm. I, I think I probably did the most significant rewrites of the, of the play. And it had to do, once again, it was Joe, Joe, Joe is exactly what you think a director should be and what you think a playwright should be, which is all ears and takes everything in and then distills it and figures out, you know, what he extracts the essence of it. So he was, he was coming at me with, once we were having understudy auditions, and at the end he said, so, do you want to know what I've been hearing? And, and he just uh -huh. told me what continued to confuse people mm -hmm. and what people were not buying. And, I'm and I don't read reviews, and I'm sure some of it came from reviews, too. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, and, and from that conversation, the most important rewrite that really, really fixed the play, I mean, made the play 
much, much better, so that it is much better now than it used to be. came from just that distillation of response of people's confusion <coughs> and people's, um, you know, incredulity. Yeah. And, and, you know, so it's, it's constant. And uh, as I'm preparing to publish it, I'm still changing things. How do you, how do you go about getting a director? Yeah. Um, you know, that's hard. That's <laughs> a very uh, – the weird thing about directing is uh, I think no, people don't know what directors do, really. Mm -hmm. I think people outside the theater have no idea. And even in the theater, you're sometimes not so sure what the function is. Because in a way, it's almost a catch-all. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of – it's almost everything. <coughs> it's, it's a guidance. It's interpretive. It's creative. It's, it's sort of everything. And um, um, it's hard. You have to – I worked for several years with the same couple of directors. And they're wonderful directors. And once you find a director you like, you tend to stick to him or her because it's so hard to find a good director who you get along with. Um, Joe was somebody I hadn't worked with him before, but I'd really loved his work. I'd seen his production of Love, Valor, Compassion. I thought it was incredibly poetically, beautifully directed and had wanted to um, work with him since then. And we'd, um, there was one play that had had a mm, production somewhere else that I gave it to him and he got attached to it and we never ended up doing it. But so when I wrote this play, I just sent it to him. He knew nothing about baseball and it turned out it didn't matter. Mm. He learned what he had to know. It's just I knew that what he put on stage would, would be beautiful business and we forged a, a relationship that was based on respect. Do you prefer a director that doesn't listen to you or <laughs> one that does? Yes, a director who doesn't listen to is, is really my ideal look. No, a director who doesn't listen to me, I've never had a director who doesn't listen to me. Well, no, I've never had a director who doesn't listen. I've you had never selected a director who doesn't listen to me. No, I've never, but the great thing, I like a director, it turns out, I like a director who never stops mm -hmm. hectoring me. Yeah. That, that I loved. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. There were, it, was, it was exhausting. And there were times I felt like, sorry, I've come to my limit. I'm, I can't do this anymore. And we had f fights, not antagonistic fights. But there were, uh, you know, he w I'm really good about cutting. I've usually been self-motivating. And, and I like cutting, but he wanted to take stuff out I didn't want to take out. And finally, he was always right. He was always right. He was always right. But <laughs> We've had performers here that have audition directors who say, now tell me, what you think the play is about, uh -huh. and uh, if it isn't what they think it is, is it no? And so it's a privilege to be able to do that. But also, how many of you would be able to do that? Do you audition a, a director? Does he does he have the same kind of thinking that you have on your play? You know, finally, it's. I think that's actually. It sounds sort of imperious, you know, because only actors who have achieved a certain level are going to be able to get away with that. But it's sort of a good thing, since it's all about a relationship. It's not really about, you know, highly talented people don't always work well together. I don't always respect an actor or an actress who, you know, in an offer-only situation where mm -hmm. they're not going to audition. Don't they want to know who they're going to be locked in a room with for mm -hmm. six weeks? I mean, you may be a wonderful actor. I may be a good director, and we may not be simpatico. So. Mm -hmm. I always take that as a bit of a strange moment of I mean, saying, why don't you come talk to me about the play? Yeah. Yeah. You might yeah. not like me. I might yeah. not like you. And we were yeah. stuck for six weeks together. Of course, are we segueing over to the audition aspect yes. of no. things, do you think? Well, uh, uh, 
uh, do you want to go there? Well, I don't know. I, I could say one or two things from an actor's point of view. Oh, but I don't have to. <laughs> but sort of bouncing back and forth, being on both sides, I'm constantly aware of how important auditions are because even if you know somebody terribly well, you don't really know how they're going to do that part. That's right. But on the other hand, I'm also aware that some of the best performances in things that I've directed have come from people who audition terribly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's such a mystical procedure, uh, and yet an, an, a wildly necessary evil. And I've also, as an actor, I have fooled people at auditions occasionally by giving just a spectacularly spot-on audition that I could never, ever possibly do again, you know. Right. When I say that, it's because, I don't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I happened to be in the mood. The thing, mm -hmm. the material didn't really work, but just like one good night, we've all, you know, had plays that worked well once only. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a really job-getting audition doesn't happen again, necessarily. And Barbara Berry is one of my most favorite actresses uh, and can't audition. I mean, right. she never gets a part yeah, in anything right. if she has to audition, and she knows it, and she tells people that, and, yeah. and people who've seen her in the theater are thrilled, or in a movie or anything, are thrilled to work with her, but mm -hmm. she knows that if she has to audition for something, she will never get the part. Mm -hmm. so. I, I know actors who don't have careers because of that. Mm -hmm. Really brilliant actors, and every now and then they get a job, and you wonder why they aren't enormous stars, and it's because they haven't somehow fluked into enormous stardom and have to audition and just don't work. Well, you well, develop your own rep company, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyone who works in the theater, you end up over a period of time, as a choreographer, writer, you, you start to have this vast group of people that you've worked with over the years and then you think of them again for something and you right. have your own rep company to some extent. Yeah, you develop a And company. then you add people in and sometimes you remove people out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I think we all do that and it's like, I think about like the films that we were just talking about that mm -hmm. you did. And that's obviously a kind of a rep company of sorts. Well, I think it's my favorite situation in anything is to work with people that you know, mm -hmm. that you like, that can challenge you because yes. it's no fun mm -hmm. to work with people who are saying yes all the time and many bad things come of that, I think. But, <coughs> but the idea that, that you're working with somebody that you trust. Uh, some I've had experiences in rehearsal with playwrights who just were dying during the rehearsal period because they wanted to see the performance at some point, and I fortunately, in certain cases, was able to say, this isn't going to happen until Tuesday night. I mean, mm -hmm. not necessarily the opening, but I know how they work, and, and the thing that's going to make right. us love them eventually is the fact that they're, they're still in rehearsal right now. They're under no obligation to entertain us right now. That's one of the things they don't do in playwright development courses, teach you when to leave rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And not come I've mastered back. that. <laughs> I've mastered, mastered that. I'd sort of, the beginning of the second week, I'm starting to take days off. Because I know, I think I bring, people tell me that I suppress it, but I think because I've mm -hmm. done so many, that mm -hmm. I bring a kind of anxious energy to the room. I think I, I bring, a, I'm waiting, and I think I'm, I'm liable to say a sentence too many. Well, I, we get, you know, a, we get out of that by yeah. all of the actors coming to your uh, study where you work and standing around the tape writer right. while you write. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you can handle that. I can handle that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually had that. <laughs> That's a very strange. No, it's occurred to me. I've actually. You can handle that? No. Okay. Of course not. <laughs> 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 no, 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 I don't want No. You don't want them there? I don't want them there. No. But I have had people. It's not mine to give them. 
But I wanted to go back to what you were saying about dimming your furnace. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I was, because <laughs> how do you figure out when you're on high and when you're like dimming it? Because if you're on high all the time, you would burn out. I don't know. I mean, I'd, with with dance, it's it's a great thing that we have a technique. Right. You know, the more you work on your technique, the more that you can kind of rely on that for the nights that your furnace isn't on high. Right. So we have we have a real defined technique. There's nothing subjective about it. It is it is very. You either hit two pirouettes or you don't hit two pirouettes. There is nothing about. Oh well, on this night, no. You either hit the two pirouettes or you don't hit the two pirouettes. And but we, some nights you and feel we like work you very soar. hard. Some nights you feel like you can hit those two pirouettes, stay there, breathe, say hello to your mom, <laughs> eat a sandwich, <laughs> and, then, you know, and then and that the music has actually slowed down and you're in total control. I mean, you hit that athletic groove that mm. takes you further. I know singers who feel the same way, and I know actors who feel the same way. Mm. Those nights, it's just we, I think, are luckier in the sense that we do have a a technique that you can actually feel and grab onto that's very definite that you know we work for years and years and years mm -hmm. to to accomplish so that then you can forget it mm -hmm. so that then you can do Fosse you can do Tharp you can do you know I was lucky I was with the Joffrey so the amount of people that I got to work with in in dance was hugely eclectic mm -hmm. hugely from DeMille to Ashton to you know everybody so it was great but it all stemmed from the same kind of a technique, and it all related back to the same kind of a technique. So with that, we're luckier in, in the sense that we can rely on that technique for the nights that inspiration ain't there. Mm -hmm. The two years you're in a run of a show. <laughs> yeah. And you've still got to go out there and make it fresh. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I think singers have the same thing. You either hit the note or you don't hit the note. Mm -hmm. And then you just trust that with a really well-structured show and with opening yourself to whatever you can do and relying on your technique, there's still going to be those nights that you're soaring, you're sailing, and nothing's affecting you, and nothing can touch you. Cool. Relying on your technique, that's, uh, that's one of the hardest things for actors to understand, you know, that, that, that technique that is involved in the process of acting. And discipline. The discipline of it is really the thing that's going to stand you in good stead. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. At all of those tough times. Yeah. And it's it's such it's so much more clear for a dancer, you know, than for an actor to understand that. But there are actors. I mean, I, I'm. Oh, there are actors I mean, who I'm do understand. I'm fortunate to be working with people like you know Stokes right now, Stokes Mitchell mm -hmm. and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, both of which have impeccable techniques. I mean, eight shows a week, they can arrive at the same place. Their technique is impeccable, and their discipline is impeccable. They take care of themselves like professional athletes, and they treat what they do <coughs> with a care and a love that each show is truly given mm -hmm. for that show. And that's the beauty of what we do, theater. I mean, that's the beauty is each one is, each night is an individual present to that audience that will never, ever, ever yeah. be repeated, ever. It's gone. Mm -hmm. And the actor and the performer and the dancer and the singer and the person that looks at it in that way, you know, that discipline comes out of that love. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. it, it, it's just a circle. That's yeah. the no, one thing I think this is a time that you have to say 
We're going to take a short break. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was going to say something else before oh. that, <laughs> but <laughs> I'll say that maybe when we come back. Is that the seventh and east stretch? Is that what it is? I think it's referred to as the time that we're going to really listen to Isabel <laughs> yeah, and see okay. what she has to say about the, uh, the wing. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on playwright, director, and choreographer, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theatre. But we also have an important grants program providing aid to off and off-off-Broadway theatres. We have expanded our scholarships to promising students to pursue studies in the theatre arts. And we offer a comprehensive guide to careers in the theatre to those seriously interested in entering the profession. As a long-established charity, dating back from World War I and World War II and our famous stage door canteen, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater. We just love to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members and everyone else whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. So now, let's return to our panel on playwright, director, choreographer, and our moderator, Lloyd Richards. Thank you very much for being here, and Lloyd, now start. Thank you, how can I go wrong? I've got such a wonderful panel. People who I've never had a chance to sit around and chat with. Now here it has been arranged by the <laughs> theater wing that these uh, very talented uh, theater artists come and be with me. Uh, uh, you can't ask for more than that. So thank you, theater wing. Thank you, Isabel. The, uh, it had occurred to me, or may not have occurred to me, but I was just wondering. I'm a director. I'm sitting here uh, among writers, choreographers, or even other directors, and uh, such. I've even been a producer. The, what do you want from me? <laughs> what, as uh, a playwright, and I am a director, what do you want from me? When am I serving you? When am I not serving you? Richard, you've got that look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> let me know. Let me know. I, you know, I want, I, I want you to. I guess I want you to give me my play, but I, but when I give it to you, I, I won't really know what it is. Do you know what I mean? I think I want it. it before I, we were talking about how hard it is to define the task, mm -hmm. and I think it, it's not because it has too few, but because it has too many functions. I mean, with a new play, I, it's very, very different. You know, with a new play. From mm -hmm. I, I don't want with a new play. I don't want the first production to be the revisionist take. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't, in a way, I think I want a director to be more humble than a director needs to be with an already established play. Um, I guess I want to be served in that way. Do you know? I want to see what the play is before it's turned into something that it isn't. I think later on it's fine to turn it into something that it isn't or something else it can be. Um, I, so, I, I, you know, I, I want to see this story that 
that's still probably vague to me, uh, somewhat vague to me, as I give it to you. Unfold. I want it clarified, and I, I, and I want it um, given over to an audience. And to me, I, I want to become an audience to my own play, which means I want to then sort of, at some point, be surprised by something that I originated. That's pretty hard to I become know. the audience and the playwright at the same time. It is, but it's, I think it's what, you're, what you want, finally. What you want. I want to have the experience. I think there's so much in the aura of what we do. There's so much, there are so many side effects. Do you know there's, there's so much personal ambition, and there's, you want to run, and you want to make money. But finally, if what we mostly wanted to do was make money, we wouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. There are more effective mm -hmm. ways to do it. There really are. Do you know? And if we want, but so what? If I, you come down to the root of it. The most exciting, the most exhilarated, I've been has been standing in the back, a few feet away from the audience, watching my play and and having it happen to me, experiencing the event as, as if I didn't know what was about to happen, and feeling the others and feeling that an audience is getting what I mean. And the director is is the crucial link, and so you have to sort of a director has to somehow at some point understand me my play better than I understand it myself. That's hard. <coughs> that's asking a lot. Well, and that's what you should get. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had, I remember asking, not quite that question, but something like it, to uh, a playwright in the middle of the night. We were walking uh, outside, and the sky was bright and blue, and we had seen a play, and uh, I said, uh, something like that, something like, what do you want? And he said, Lord, I want to see my picture hmm. on the front page of the Sunday edition of the theater section of the <laughs> New York Times. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> and that's very honest and very real, but it represents a lot of other things. But it is something to be wanted. Hmm. What do you want from a director? Um... Our director, Stan Lathan, predominantly works in television. And so Stan, when he worked with us on our individual poems and the arc of the show from one poem to another, um, kept asking, what's the intention of this poem? Because he was being educated by the poets about their experiences and uh, what they want, the, the world that they wanted to create. And I guess with me, because I'd had no performance experience at all, I kept, he kept asking me, um, but what are you trying to say? And I think I, I disagree in um, the seeing him give me what I wanted, because what I really wanted was to make people slightly uncomfortable, but then I couldn't deal with it as a performer when they were uncomfortable. <laughs> That's what the poet wanted. The poem wanted to confront people. Um, but then I, as a person, couldn't deal with what happened when I confronted people with my poem. And so he stayed mm. true to that, and I trusted him. Mm. Um, I couldn't have done it with anyone else. And I trusted the people that he brought in to light the show, to stage the show, to help us with our, our voice and to help us with our posture. And if I hadn't trusted that he would give me my intention, <laughs> despite the obstacles that I put, my own insecurities um, that I put between me and the <coughs> audience, um, I couldn't. I wouldn't have r realized the intention of the poem. I two phrases. Uh, I couldn't have done it with anyone else. I trusted him. That seemed somehow to be a very important component, or a combination of components that is essential 
in uh, the working together of any group of that uh, group of artists who create a theater piece or mm -hmm. create theater. Uh, trust is something that is uh, essential to that coming together of those minds. Anything else? I'd like to know about the playwright's role in casting. Are you there for casting? How does that happen? Who has a say in casting? Oh yeah, you have to be there. Uh, it's, it's, it, uh, for most people, I think casting is probably the most crucial moment, I think. It's where you can go really, really very badly wrong or very wonderfully right. So yes, you're there at every audition. And um, it's weird. I don't, know what the, I don't know what the sort of structural, if there is a hierarchy. I don't know if anybody has, I don't know if it, there's in mm -hmm. some rule book, somebody there has last said. Oh, yes. Is yeah. it me? Is oh, it yes. the playwright, really? As a but director, I can tell you it's not the director. It's not the director. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> it probably is. And, it, and the, uh, the producer, I don't really it's know. No, it's me? Well, it really team. isn't, though. It really is, it, it has to be um, a, a kind of a team. You cannot, because the director, if the director isn't seeing it, if the director cannot see an actor in that role, even if the playwright does, the, he's not going to be able to, or she is not going to be able to have a relationship and is not going to get the performance. So there is a moment of compromise and there is even some sadness sometimes when you just feel something that's so right that someone else doesn't see. And it can be a moment, it's also a moment of discovery. You hear these scenes over and over again. Are you there for <coughs> auditions for the casting? Yes. Yeah, you're there for every yes, audition. You are. You're all yeah. for all the callbacks. Mm -hmm. you're, and, and all the, and the, the post-audition discussions and the whole thing. The a playwright has the final decision on all the uh, cast who function in this play, also on all the words mm -hmm. that are spoken on the stage. The playwright has the responsibility for them. Finally, though, it's a bit of a template for the relationship is how you deal with casting, how you, mm -hmm. what, what the conversation is, and how you come to see the play. And it's also, um, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing for a director because I, I know that Joe, in casting Take Me Out, got ideas from people's mm -hmm. auditions. Often the auditions of people he wasn't even remotely considering for the roles. Mm -hmm. But they bring things in and he'd suddenly, get a, he'd suddenly understand the play. So it, it, it's a bigger process than just mm -hmm. finding actors. It's, it's finding the play and finding, do you know, um, sort kind of a of world the first of time that you actually, as the collaborative team with the writer and the director, it's the first moments that you have to kind of talk about the play to some extent. Mm -hmm. you, may, you may have talked about the play, but until you're actually in a room with somebody saying it and you're dialoguing about an actor and saying, well, what did you think? I thought that was fantastic. And the writer looks at you like you're out of your mind. It's you you it's start to kind of develop. Until the actors are there, it's completely abstract. How do you yeah. You're talking qualities, you know? As a writer, uh, working with... Do you ever get a chance to work with a designer? Because hmm. uh, uh, that has always been an interesting thing for me. I know that on many of the shows that I've done, I've, you, you have the design conference, and the playwright is not there. Hmm. Really? Really? Yes, yeah. That can that happen. And, it's, yeah. and having worked with so many designers who I thought were wonderful in terms of conceptualizing a play and knowing that uh, a designer cannot put pen mm -hmm. to paper mm -hmm. until he understands the play. Mm -hmm. That he goes through a lot in terms of that understanding. So I instituted 
uh, one thing at the National Playwrights Conference when I was working there, where, well, there were sessions, of course, between the director and the, uh, and the playwright and everybody else and the playwright, but no sessions between the designer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the playwright. So they would happen between the director and the designer. Now I instituted a meeting where uh, the designer would meet with the playwright and the director was required to be there mm -hmm. but to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> so really, oh, because I had found that the designers sometimes ask the same questions that a director will ask, but he asks them from a different point of view. And uh, very interesting things happen that way, but it's one of the areas of exchange that doesn't always happen. But it's interesting, too, because it's the key difference between movies and theater, again, is that in movies, the director is king and can throw out the script and cast and just... Okay. Except I worked with Patty Shaevsky uh, in a movie once, and he had a dramatist guild contract in the movie, wow. which never happens. No. This was a movie of altered states, and if you were on the set in Los Angeles and somebody came in and said, could I say, please pass the butter instead of pass the butter, they'd have to call New York and talk to Patty, which you don't get Maybe too well. often in a, yeah. in a movie. But also, I was surprised as a producer to notice that in the dramatist guild contract, you also have ultimate approval over everything. You everything. have approval over the designer, yeah. and you have approval <laughs> over the... You didn't know that. Somebody should have told me this. <laughs> yeah, over yeah. casting the national <laughs> companies, and I mean, I over basically everything. I remember, though, John Guerre once talking about the design issue, and I think it was at, actually at Yale, and he said he found the only way he could be sure of getting what he wanted was to write it into the dialogue. So <laughs> <laughs> you just sit there on that blue sofa. You know, as interesting as this is, I can see from the kind of shining, expectant faces in our audience <laughs> that, that there are things out there that they want to say, too. They don't just want to listen all the time. So I hear that there are uh, a couple uh, or a few interesting questions that uh, we should listen to and see if it's possible for us to, uh, to answer them. If not, I'll find a way to get us out of it. <laughs> <laughs> the question, <Okay>. please. <clears throat> my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Richard Greenberg. First, I think you should have won a Pulitzer Prize for the Dazzle. And now, um, I heard you say on Theater Talk that you started to watch baseball out as a way out of reading Proust. But did Proust <laughs> or any other writer have uh, an, an, influ <coughs> an influence on your development as a writer? Uh, Proust didn't, although I, um, <laughs> I, ha I ha it was actually rereading Proust, which is one of the like real pretentious buzzwords that people talk about rereading Proust. But I, it was the summer, and I, I had nothing to, um, I had nothing to do, and so I started watching baseball accidentally, and then became obsessed. Um, the writers, you know, it, that's a question writers always get asked, um, and I've been influenced by exactly the same writers that every other playwright I know has been influenced by, and I find it sort of demoralizing to answer the question. Um, but among contemporaries, I, mm. do you know, when I was very, when I was just starting uh, writing, I, I, 
I wrote plays very quickly in order to get into Yale, because at the time I applied, you needed two plays, and I'd only written one. <laughs> and so I just kept <laughs> writing plays quickly, and I was constantly ripping off Lanford Bolson. <laughs> I so blatantly that I'm sure it was actionable. Luckily, never of those plays, none of those plays ever got produced. And like many other, um, again, I'm bringing up John Guare, but like so many playwrights, he's, um, among contemporary living playwrights, mm -hmm. he's been incredibly um, important to me. I, I think, I try to figure out why playwrights love him so mm -hmm. much, and they seem to. And I think it's because he gives off the sense of being so happy to be so talented. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of incredible <laughs> exuberance in his work <laughs> that, that just draws you to it, and a kind of, a sort of a tragic exuberance that makes mm -hmm. um, the joy and the love in it feel not unserious. Uh, I, I, think, I think it's very hard to write about, sort of, about to be so kind of life-loving and also be a serious writer, and he manages that. And um, so I think he, he's, you know, and I've come to know him a little, and he's also this incredibly great embracing guy. And it's, it's very weird. I still have trouble calling him by his first name. I just, <coughs> you know, he calls me by mine, but that seems appropriate. I, <laughs> I, I still have that sort of youthful awe of him. Hmm. So I think, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I always want to know where you came from, not from Virginia or wherever, but how did you get to where you are? Did you study? Did you work in a small town? Did you work in a theater? Uh, I, came, I came up at uh, 17 years old and got into the Joffrey Ballet and went from the Joffrey into musical theater and stayed in musical theater until I switched over to direction and choreography. So I've been here for the last 27 years, <laughs> from Florida originally. <laughs> Bob? We have another I'm sorry. We had another question. The, that I who had been looking at me and smiling <laughs> in such a way as I had to say, I don't care who I cut off, you're going to be next. <laughs> <laughs> so you are. Hi, my question. name is Nicole Stoika, and my question is for the panel. Um, how can an aspiring director best prepare for a professional career? Hmm. Assist. Yeah. Assist. Become an assistant director. I mean, try and find, there's really good programs through SSDC, um, and there's some very good programs through Lincoln Center, the Lincoln Center Director's Lab. But if you can find a director that you can work with and try to assist them, that's where you're going to learn the most about direction, because it's, there's more to direction than just working with the actors. Uh, there's the whole scenic element and all the things that they're talking about, all the hats that a director wears. and when you are able to assist, you can sit back and, and watch what the director is doing without being in the hot seat, and it's actually a nice thing to be able to do. Um, it teaches you more about the craft than you could possibly learn in any book or university, I think, having mm -hmm. come up as a grunt as opposed to going to school. I also think you have to create your own opportunities. Um, <clears throat> don't wait for somebody to give you a job. Find a writer, work with a writer, find a way to get that project seen, even if it's, you know, for $5 in a production. But you've got to do it. You've got to learn by doing it as well. I mean, I, I agree with him about assisting as well, but that, and also you have to have a point of view in the world. So it's not about theater. It's about staying, reading the newspaper. It's about going to an art museum. It's about finding out who you are so that you have a point of view to offer as a director, as opposed to just having a career, because it's not about having a career, it's really about having a point of view in the world. And that's important. It's important to recognize what you're asking. Yes. You know, you're asking 
someone to put your life in my hands. You know, I know what to do with your work better than anybody else in the world. <laughs> That's really what a director is saying. Trust me, give me your future, your life, your hopes, your dreams, everything you've been able to accomplish. I'll put it and trust me with it. And I will take it someplace. That's what you're saying. That's why you go to any producer and you say, I want to direct. He says, why should I? Why should I trust my life to you? And you've got to be able to answer that. That's all. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we have a next question. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Chris, and I have a question I'd like to offer to the whole panel. Um, what kind of action can a playwright take in order to help get his work produced? Mm. All right, anybody want to handle that? How do you get a work produced? I sent my work into the Hip Hop Theatre Festival uh, th three years ago, and it was produced last summer, um, a play I wrote called Blood Trinity. And I just kept sending it to festivals that I knew were small and open and could use my name as much as I could use theirs, in a way. And I know it's hard to say just send it to festivals because you get more rejections than anything else, but because I'm not from the theatre world, all I knew was, here's a festival where the, the audience that they were going to be bringing in was the audience that I wanted to reach. And so I just sent it in, and I was lucky enough to have it produced. And I wasn't even here. I was in San Francisco working on the show <laughs> when it was up. So I didn't get to see it, which sucks. But I heard it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my one thing is you have to be incredibly inventive and don't stop at anything, mm. as you have to in all these areas. I think it's the same thing. Uh, I did a play at the Public Theatre mm, 18 years ago, um, and this is how it got produced. The playwright, seven years earlier, had sent his play to the Public Theatre, where it sat in a stack of 3,000 plays. And one day, they were cleaning out the offices at the Public Theatre. And some reader, actually, was assigned to read, finally, all 3,000 plays. And, well, they couldn't throw them away and clean the office. And the play got read, and it was produced. And he had been with the playwright, when they called to announce to him that they had chosen his play, <laughs> didn't really remember it. I'm just saying. It was a water story. <laughs> and then um, his play got produced. You, know, so you never know. No, no, you don't ever know. And you just have to be prepared and mm -hmm. trust everything and work. Work at it. Mm -hmm. You must work at it. It's not just going to happen for you like it does in the movies. Mm -hmm. This is the theater. <laughs> you don't work for it. <laughs> yes, another question. Um, yes. Your, your name? My name is Carolina Greenwich, and I have a question for Suhair. Um, do you think there's likely to be more and more poetry on the Broadway stage? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> Our show has not done well financially. And um, like all Broadway shows, you can see our returns in variety <laughs> um, and in the press. And unfortunately, though we've received what I hear are the best reviews in three years from all the major papers, there's still a level of fear and, and I guess, ignorance that has kept people from coming into the seats. And that really matters to producers who will put on a show after us. And I, I think with our show, it's not only that we are nine poets and a DJ, we're also predominantly, we have one white guy in our show, as you know, <laughs> um, so we're predominantly people of color uh, show, and I think on Broadway there have, of course, been um, shows that 
reflect an experience that is not Euro-American, but they've been in a particular aesthetic or they've come from a p particular school. And this aesthetic and what these poets are saying is new, very new for people. And, I am, and <coughs> I'm glad that so many people have come out to see it, but I'm really concerned that when we close, um, it'll, it'll be more of a fearful lesson to mm -hmm. people. Um, that you need so much money to keep it going until the rest of the world gets it. So uh, in the meantime, hopefully um, people who are doing new theater all over uh, America will see that you can actually affect change in people's lives and in their souls. People have come back to our show five and six and seven times, and every time it's different. And so we're very, very proud of it. But um, having been introduced into Broadway and into the theater world, I understand now that it's not only about changing people's lives. There's a bottom line that has to be met. And uh, I really hope we've opened the door and that the next people who come along are actually more fortified with money to keep it open until the people get it. There's nothing else we could do. We, we put our hearts out there every night and we got the reviews and we just stay there until we can't anymore. And so. Just keep writing poetry anyway. <laughs> and someday, like, like Floyd, said, Floyd said, you will get up there, and hopefully somebody will open up a door again. When your chance comes, be yeah. ready. Yeah, that's, that's what, what luck is. is. It's being yeah. prepared. Yeah. Any other questions? Any questions from up here to one another, to me, to Isabel? Isabel. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my question. <laughs> Where do you come from? <laughs> Should we go in order this way? Yes, started? why don't we right. start I, here? I'm from Chicago. Oh, you, uh, you want to start? Oh, you're not the end of the line. I already went. No, I already already went. Already went. Would you want to change your story? <laughs> no, I, I still come from Florida. He <laughs> <laughs> looked like he came from a <laughs> different <laughs> place. I'm still Cuban. I'm still Cuban. That hasn't changed. That's great. I'm from Chicago, and I always wanted to end up in New York, so I did. Um, and I got here by way of Colgate University, went to NYU, and my girlfriend at the time said they're casting an off-Broadway musical for short people. Completely <laughs> 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 true. You had to be five foot six. Hear about that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you were. Uh, and I auditioned, and I was the original Linus in your good man, Charlie Brown. Uh, oh. And you know, and then I stayed in New York and got into some movies, and <laughs> so now funny. do different things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they weren't thinking of, though, if we were all short, sure. then who would know? You know, I mean, the point is, <laughs> the scenery would city. be tall. Just big, big scenery would have been fine. But we were all little people, relatively. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that's how I got here. Oh well, good. It's a wonder that you did. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, they always need. Th it's interesting. The very thing that you think is the thing about you that will prevent you from ever getting anything <laughs> is usually the thing that ends up making you different from somebody that you might have an opportunity. Well, yes, I know. I went through that, you know, and uh, but I didn't know that as an actor. Of course, I was black to begin with. So that I uh, started out uh, not getting work for that reason. Then I uh, discovered that I wasn't as tall <laughs> as Sidney Poitier. <laughs> and so I didn't get real for that. And they kept getting the reasons. So finally uh, they said, oh, you direct? Well, why don't you direct this? And uh, they said, that's acceptable. Your height doesn't matter <laughs> when you're directing or your weight or anything else. Lloyd? Yes. Where do you come from? Where do I come from? What's your background? 
Oh, I was born in Toronto, Canada, and went to Detroit, Michigan by the time I was four years old. I went through my entire education in Detroit, Michigan, which taught me essentially that I wanted to be in New York <laughs> and the theater. And so as soon as I'd finished the education part of it, which I left for Detroit, I came to New York. That was uh, a number of years ago. I decided I wanted to be on Manhattan Island. And since I <laughs> got here ooh, that many years ago, I've been on Manhattan Island. Mm. But that's where I come from. I come from a longing for the theater. And that's why I'm here. And how did you get to Yale? How did I get to Yale? How did I get to Yale? I got to Yale by virtue of having been to NYU. And uh, I went to NYU to teach when they started the professional training program there. That the uh, people at NYU I knew and uh, I said, okay, I want to teach here. But I had taught before that with Paul Mann, so I taught there, and then they were, yeah, wanted me to teach at Hunter, and I taught at Hunter, and then when they were replacing Robert Brewstein at Yale, uh, I seemed to be one of the few people in the country who was trained both in education mm. and in the professional theater. Mm. Mm. There were surprisingly few people who had that. So I think I was one of two people really considered. I'm so sorry to interrupt everybody, and, and this happens all the time. There is so much more to be said, and you're all so wonderful and so generous in your sharing your knowledge with us. But we have to say this is the American Theater Wing Seminar on Working in the Theater, coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. These people on the seminars have been so generous and so wonderful that I am indeed proud to be part of this profession. And for you, Lloyd, I am so dearly grateful to you for everything you've done for the theater and for the American Theater Wing. You are indeed a very special man. And so that ends the American Theater Wing seminar for today on working in the theater. Mm -hmm.